Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and it's Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, March 30, 2010. This report on tax credits is brought to you each week by Novogratik & Company, LLP. Today, I will discuss the latest HUD news, including key provisions of H.R. 4868, the Housing Preservation and Tenant Protection Act of 2010. The House Financial Services Subcommittee on Housing and Community Opportunity held a hearing on the bill last week. Then, I will review a couple of state tax credit updates. In Oregon, Governor Kulingowski recently approved a new law that changes the state's business energy tax credit program. And, in New York, legislation was introduced earlier this month to expand the state's historic rehabilitation tax credit. Next, I'll share the latest low-income housing tax credit news. Last week, the Internal Revenue Service released updated population figures, figures that will be used to determine each allocating agency's LIHTC, or LIHTC, ceilings for 2010. And finally, I have a couple of updates from the CDFI Fund. Last week, the CDFI Fund released its 2009 annual report and renewed the call for reviewers to participate in the application review process for the Capital Magnet Fund. But first, I have several renewable energy topics to address. On March 15th, the Treasury Department quietly updated its program guidance for the Section 1603 Renewable Energy Tax Credit Cash Grant Exchange Program. Section 4C of the guidance, which is labeled, quote, beginning of construction, close quote, was updated with a new passage regarding what is considered physical work of a significant nature. No other changes were made to the guidance. As some listeners may recall, we discussed in the March 2nd Tax Credit Tuesday podcast that there was some uncertainty in the renewable energy community about some projects' eligibility for the Section 1603 cash grant program because of the issue of what constitutes physical work of a significant nature. Before the guidance was updated, it was unclear what the Treasury Department considered eligible drilling-related pre-construction costs. For example, investors were unsure if geothermal power wells drilled as part of the required exploratory resource verification would trigger the commencement of construction determination. In the updated guidance, the Treasury states that physical work of a significant nature does not include, does not include preliminary activities such as planning or designing, securing financing, exploring, researching, clearing a site, test drilling of a geothermal deposit, test drilling to determine soil condition, or excavation to change the contour of the land. That's distinguished from excavation for footings and foundations. This clarification is welcome news for the renewable energy community. To discuss what this guidance means to your project and other breaking news, I invite you to join Novogratz and Company at the Financing Renewable Energy Conference in San Francisco on April 29th and 30th. You can learn more about the conference and you can register online at www.novaco.com slash events. I hope to see you there. In the meantime, national support for renewable energy tax credits continues to grow. On March 24th, a group of 19 governors sent a letter to President Barack Obama urging expansion of the Section 48 Cap C Advanced Energy Manufacturing Tax Credit. The Section 48 Cap C tax credit was created by the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. In January of this year, $2.3 billion in credits were awarded to recipients in 43 states. These credits will support manufacturing energy projects in those states. The governors report that these federal resources have leveraged more than $5.4 billion in private investment. 
In their letter, the governors discussed the success of the tax credit, and they described the economic benefits that would come with an expansion. A copy of their letter and more information about the Section 48 Cap-C program can be found online at www.energytaxcredits.com. You can also call my partner, Tony Grapponi, to learn more. He can be reached at 617-330-1920. That's 617-330-1920. In additional related news, a group called the Governor's Wind Energy Coalition released a set of energy recommendations to Congress on March 16th. Iowa Governor Chet Culver and Rhode Island Governor Donald Carcieri are the chair and vice chair of the 29th state organization. In a statement announcing the document's release, Governor Carcieri said it was the first set of comprehensive wind energy recommendations ever submitted to Congress by a group of the nation's governors. The recommendations call for the following actions by Congress and the administration. 1. Adopt a renewable electricity standard. 2. Develop new interstate electric transmission system infrastructure as needed to provide access to premier renewable energy resources both onshore and offshore. 3. Fully support coastal, deep water, and offshore wind energy technology and transmission research and development. 4. Streamline permitting processes for both offshore and onshore wind energy development projects. 5. Expand the U.S. Department of Energy's work with the states and the wind industry to accelerate innovation. And six, extend the Treasury Department's Section 1603 Renewable Energy Tax Credit Cash Grant Exchange Program, as well as adopt a long-term renewable energy production tax credit with provisions to broaden the pool of eligible investors. On the sixth point, the governors say an extension of the Treasury Department's grant program is necessary while financial markets continue to recover. They report that the grant program has proven to provide a strong stimulus for completing wind projects in 2009. They also say that over the longer term, the production tax credit should be extended for at least five years in order to provide a stable incentive for wind energy investment. In their paper, the group says that the recent history of short-term extension of the credit is an example of the absence of long-term energy policy that has caused the loss of manufacturing capacity to foreign competitors. Further, the governor suggests that reforms are also needed to broaden the pool of investors who can participate in wind energy and to take advantage of applicable tax incentives. However, the written recommendations do not detail specifically what those reforms should entail. A copy of the governor's Wind Energy Coalition's recommendations can be downloaded from www.energytaxcredits.com. Now let's move on to the HUD news portion of this week's podcast. First, let's review the Housing Preservation and Tenant Protection Act of 2010. On March 17th, House Financial Services Committee Chairman Barney Frank introduced H.R. 4868, the Housing Preservation and Tenant Protection Act. The bill is designed to address the preservation of the existing affordable housing stock and to prevent the displacement of low-income tenants. Chairman Frank says the preservation of affordable rental units should be a high priority for the federal government, because it's simpler and less expensive than building new units to replace them, and it minimizes the disruption in tenants' lives. In 2004, the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, reported that 193,000 subsidized units were projected to become market-rate housing in the next 10 years, as their HUD subsidized mortgages mature and other affordability restrictions terminate. Without existing tenant protections, such as vouchers from HUD, 
the GAO estimated that approximately 200,000 individuals would be at risk of paying higher rents or being evicted. To help address this rapid loss of affordable housing stock, Chairman Frank's bill incentivizes owners to keep properties affordable. H.R. 4868 also includes provisions designed to prevent tenant displacement and enable monitoring of the affordable housing portfolio through the establishment of a nationwide public database of HUD and Rural Housing Service properties. After the bill's introduction, several organizations issued statements in support of H.R. 4868, including the National Housing Trust, the Institute for Responsible Housing Preservation, and the Local Initiative Support Corporation, or LISC. LISC Vice President for Affordable Housing Preservation, Vincent O'Donnell, said that passage of the bill would make it easier for the not-for-profit developers that LISC works with to extend the life of their existing affordable housing. Mr. O'Donnell also said that the measure would have a direct effect on not-for-profit developers' bottom line. In some cases, it would allow them to pull some equity out of properties that they could then use to further their charitable missions. The bill was considered by the House Financial Services Subcommittee on Housing and Community Opportunity at a hearing on March 24th. Representatives from HUD and the USDA Rural Housing Service presented testimony. The subcommittee also heard from owners and residents of assisted housing and affordable housing advocates. Several witnesses at the hearing expressed concerns about a few sections of the bill, particularly Section 107. This section allows for a federal right of first refusal. This provision would enable HUD to purchase affordable housing properties at fair market value to prevent them from being lost to the private market. George Caruso, speaking on behalf of the National Affordable Housing Management Association, said he feared that this provision would drive away potential purchasers and equity providers. Instead, as an alternative, he voiced support for the approach described in Section 106, which establishes a voluntary preservation exchange for owners to transfer or sell their property to a purchaser who agrees to accept long-term affordability restrictions. Carol Galani, HUD's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Multifamily Housing, also testified last week that more than 1,700 properties are financed with HUD mortgages that are due to mature within five years. She said, and I quote, HUD supports the fundamental principles of this bill. With some refinements, we believe this legislation will provide HUD with additional tools to facilitate the preservation work that can renew and protect our multifamily properties. Close quote. Stay tuned for updates as this legislation makes its way through Congress. You can download the text of H.R. 4868 at www.hudresourcecenter.com. You can find links to last week's hearing testimony as well as a link to an archived webcast of the hearing on that site as well. In other HUD news, the Office of Multifamily Housing Programs issued a blanket 30-day filing extension for multifamily housing projects with a December 31, 2009 year-end. HUD says that due to infrastructure performance problems, multifamily property owners have experienced difficulties submitting financial statements that are due by March 30th. The Office of Multifamily Housing Programs, Office of Asset Management, authorized the Real Estate Assessment Center, or REAC, to implement a blanket across-the-board 30-day extension for owners whose project fiscal year ends December 31, 2009. HUD says the extension has been automatically implemented, so there's no need to request an extension. The extended due date is April 30, 2010. HUD says that owners who submit financial statements on or before April 30th 
will not be referred to the Departmental Enforcement Center or be flagged in the Active Partners Performance System, or APPS. If you have questions about this extension or the filing requirements for your HUD property, I encourage you to contact my partner, Susan Wilson, at 512-340-0420. That's 512-340-0420. And on one final related note, HUD announced earlier this month a change in the calculation of statutory mortgage limits for FHA multifamily mortgage insurance. This might lead to higher mortgage amounts for a number of borrowers. On March 16th, HUD announced that effective immediately, total land value will be excluded, yes, excluded, from the calculation of the statutory mortgage limits for FHA multifamily mortgage insurance. As I mentioned, this change could potentially result in larger FHA loans especially in areas where land costs are very high. More information on this policy change can be found in Mortgagee Letter 2010-10. That's Mortgagee Letter 2010-10. This letter is available online at our www.hudresourcecenter.com. That's www.hudresourcecenter.com. I also invite you to contact my partner, Blair Kinser, for more information. He can be reached in our Metro DC office at 240-235-1701, or just send an email to Blair, B-L-A-I-R dot Kenser, K-I-N-C-E-R, at novaco.com. Next, let's move on to a couple of state-level tax credit developments. In New York, a set of companion bills have been introduced that could jumpstart more than $175 million, yes, $175 million, worth of redevelopment activity. Senate Bill 7042 and Assembly Bill 10168 were introduced by Senator David Valesky and Assemblymember Sam Hoyt. The bills address several issues with the New York State Historic Preservation Tax Credit Program. First, some background. New York State Assembly authorized the tax credit program in 2006 to encourage redevelopment of historic properties in low and moderate income areas. The program provides tax credits to rehab historic residential and commercial buildings. In July last year, the Assembly amended the program. The 2009 changes included several improvements. Last year's bill, for instance, increased the cap for commercial projects to $5 million, increased the credit amount to 20% of qualified rehabilitation expenditures, and allowed developers to use the credit at properties in areas earning up to 100% of the area median income. On the flip side, however, two changes were made last year that have caused some complications for tax credit projects. First, the program now requires a single investor for state and federal historic tax credits. Also, because of vague language in the bills, the New York State Department of Taxation and Finance ruled last September that the tax credits could not, that's right, could not be used to offset banks or insurance companies' franchise taxes. Following these changes, Development in upstate New York stalled as developers struggled to find alternate investors with adequate federal and state tax appetite. They worked with preservation advocates, the governor, and assembly members to remedy the situation. The result of their combined efforts are the two bills introduced on March 9th. The pair of bills would allow developers to bifurcate the state tax credit from the federal tax credit and allow banks and insurance companies to use the credit to offset their franchise taxes. If passed, the changes would apply to projects started after January 1, 2010. Preservation advocates and developers say that the changes make the credit competitive with other states' historic tax credit programs. The 2010 amendments also have support from the governor. 
On March 18th, Governor David Patterson presented a governor's program bill that included the same provisions. A governor's program bill indicates tacit approval from various state agencies. Upon introduction, the bills were referred to committee. No action had been taken on either bill as of late last week. More information about preservation advocates and developers' efforts to change the New York State Historic Preservation Tax Credit Program can be found in our February issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. And copies of the bills are posted online and will track their progress at www.historictaxcredits.com. Now, let's travel over to the Pacific Northwest for an energy tax credit update. On March 18th, Oregon Governor Ted Kulingowski signed House Bill 3680 into law. The law reforms Oregon's Business Energy Tax Credit, or, as it is commonly referred to by its acronym BETC, or the BETCs. The BETCs are administered by the State's Department of Energy. The BETC program provides a tax credit for renewable energy resource equipment manufacturing facilities and other renewable energy resource facilities. HB 3680 makes four significant changes to the commercial side of the program. First, the law caps the renewable energy production and manufacturing tax credits. Renewable energy production tax credits are capped at $300 million for a two-year period that ends June 30, 2011 and $150 million for the year beginning July 1, 2011 and ending June 30, 2012. Tax credits for renewable energy resource equipment manufacturing facilities are now capped at $200 million for the two-year period ending June 30, 2011 and June 30, 2013, and $50 million for the six months ending December 31, 2013, but beginning July 1, 2013. Second, the new law phases out credits for large wind facilities. Wind facilities with more than 10 megawatts of capacity can receive no more than 5% of the total cost of the facility in credits up to $7 million. The maximum credit amount for large wind facilities will eventually be reduced to $3 million per facility. Third, the new law gives the Department of Energy greater control of the program and provides 16 criteria yes, 16 criteria that the director can use to determine a project's benefit to the state. Fourth and finally, the new law requires renewable energy resource equipment manufacturing facilities to obtain pre-certification before January 1, 2014. For other projects, final certification must be obtained before July 1, 2012. More information about the Betsy program, including the text of HB 3680, can be found at www.energytaxcredits.com. More information about the process that led to these changes to the Betsy program is also available in the January issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. If you're not a subscriber or if you've missed the January issue, you can request an archived copy by sending an email to cpas at novoco.com. Next, I have two announcements for the low-income housing tax credit community. First, last week, the IRS released new population figures. In Notice 2010-21, the IRS released new population figures for calculating the 2010 population-based component of a state's low-income housing tax credit ceiling and the 2010 taxes and bond volume caps. Under Revenue Procedure 2009-50, released last year, for calendar year 2010, the amounts used to calculate the LIHTC ceiling is the greater of $2.10 multiplied by a state's population or a small state minimum of $2.43 million. For taxes and bonds, a state's volume cap is greater of $90 
times the state's population or a small state minimum of $273 million. Based on the figures released last week of actual population by state, it appears that Wyoming grew by 2.2%, which represents the largest percentage increase in state population on a year-to-year basis. This was followed by Texas, a quite large state to have experienced a 1.9% year-to-year growth. And then you have Louisiana, where the population grew by 1.8% on a year-to-year basis. On the other end of the spectrum, Michigan's population actually decreased by 0.3%. The total population change for all states in 2010, which means the total change in local and cash credits and tax and bonds throughout the country, was an increase of 0.9%, just under 1% increase in population. A copy of Notice 2010-21 can be downloaded at www.taxcredithousing.com. In additional local housing tax credit news, HUD last month updated its local housing tax credit database. This database was created by HUD and has been available to the public since 1997. HUD's database is the only complete national source of information on the size, unit mix, and location of individual projects. The database contains information on more than 31,000 projects and more than 1.8 million housing units that have been placed in service between 1987 and the year 2007. The database includes the following information. Project address, number of total units as well as low-income units, number of bedrooms, year the credit was allocated, year the project was placed in service, whether the project was new, construction, or rehab, the type of credit provided, as well as other sources of project financing. The database is also geocoded, which enables researchers to look at the geographical distribution and neighborhood characteristics of tax credit projects. The most recent update includes data for projects placed in service through 2007. HUD reports that this included 618 projects and 58,650 units placed in service between 1995 and 2006 that had not been included in previous updates. Wrapping up today's podcast, I have two announcements from the CDFI Fund. First, the CDFI Fund last week extended to March 31st its deadline for interested parties to submit resumes for consideration as application reviewers for the fiscal year 2010 funding round of the Capital Magnet Fund. This new program will provide competitively awarded grants to CDFIs and qualified not-for-profit housing organizations to finance affordable housing and related activities. To learn more about the Capital Magnet Fund and how to apply for it, I encourage you to contact my partner, Diana Letzinger, at 562-432-9482. And second, the CDFI Fund last week released its Fiscal Year 2009 Performance and Accountability Report. It's a lengthy report, and it makes interesting reading. I encourage you to give it a read. This important annual publication provides a comprehensive assessment of the operations of the CDFI Fund. While there isn't a lot of particularly new data about the New Market Task Program in the publication, there is a review of the program to date and the CDFI Fund's NMTC activities last year. A copy of the report can be found at www.newmarketscredits.com. Just click on the resources area and then look to the tab Reports and Research. For our listeners who work at not-for-profit organizations and or those who sit on the board of a not-for-profit, I wanted to take a moment to ensure that you know about one of the many services we at Never Gotta provide to not-for-profit organizations and charities. 
The private inurement prohibition under Internal Revenue Code Section 4958 does not allow tax-exempt Section 501c3 organizations to use their assets or income to unreasonably benefit disqualified persons of the organization. A disqualified person can be a board member, trustee, officer, key employee, or any individual who has a close relationship with the organization and the ability to exercise control over them. Section 4958 imposes penalties when excess benefit transactions are made to disqualified persons. In addition to repaying the excess benefit, a tax equal to 25% of the excess benefit is imposed on the disqualified person. Furthermore, an organization's manager, who normally participated in the excess benefit transaction, must pay a tax equal to 10% of the excess benefit. An excess benefit is the amount by which the economic benefit given to a disqualified person exceeds the reasonable value of services provided by the disqualified person. The most common type of excess benefit transaction is excess compensation. A charitable organization can establish a rebuttable presumption that a compensation arrangement is reasonable if certain conditions are met, but given the increased scrutiny by the IRS on excess benefit transactions and the increased disclosure requirements on the Form 990, charities should closely examine their compensation arrangements and any other transactions they have with disqualified persons. Now comes the Novogratian Company. Our professionals are well-versed on the requirements of Section 4958, and they can help you with these kinds of determinations. To learn more about how we can work with you, I invite you to visit www.novocode.com services or call my partner, Diane Rubin, at 415-356-8000. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week when I'll discuss more tax credit news for affordable housing, community development, and renewable energy professionals. This is Mike Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.